0: new books in language. Today I'm talking to Ingrid Piller about her book, Linguistic Diversity and Social Justice, which critically examines the role that language plays in bringing about social outcomes. In this interview, we discuss how language abilities come to be treated as a proxy for other social factors and can be implicated in discrimination. We look at how the perception of bilingualism interacts with other cultural considerations, and we consider some of the ways in which formal education can propagate social injustice. Today I'm talking with Professor Ingrid Hiller about her book, Linguistic Diversity and Social Justice, which is a wide-ranging exploration of the societal consequences of language use. Ingrid, how did you come to write this book?
1: Hi, Chris. Thanks a lot for um, having me on the show, and thanks a lot for the question. Look, I've been working in... Um bilingualism and language learning and intercultural communication for um, almost 20 years now, both as an academic, as a researcher and also as a practitioner in language teaching and with um, adult migrants, one of the, particularly here in Australia, and one of the roles I had was as um executive director of a research center devoted to um, a migration program and language teaching program that we have here in Australia. It's called the AMEP, that stands for Adult Migrant English Program, and the Adult Migrant English Program was founded after the war to help um, new migrants, particularly from Europe at the time, to find their feet with English in Australia, and um, it has been funded by the federal government Ever since in various levels. And so Australia as a multicultural and migration society is very aware of the challenges faced by new migrants who may not be speaking English or may not be speaking it very well and um, has over the years done quite a lot to address those problems. At the same time um, in my research and also in my encounters with many, many migrants, um, with many teachers in the migrant space, with policymakers, it also became increasingly clear to me that, you know, despite the best efforts that everyone puts into learning a new language and teaching a new language and supporting new migrants, language still acts as a way that stratifies access to resources in our society. And um, seeing that Australia is in, has in many ways been very, very supportive of the language learning in a way that has not been the case in other migration destinations really motivated me to explore the role of language in social stratification much more. And I just wanted to bring this kind of issue to the attention also of a wider audience and start uh, wider conversation, because we are very aware of the way social inequality is related to um, gender in particular, to race, to ethnicity. But language somehow works differently. We don't quite see it as such a problem. And partly that has to do with the fact that most of us assume that language is something you can change easily. It's Seen as an aspect of our identity that is quite different from, say, gender, which you know is very difficult to change, or um, racial identity, which also seems uh, much more difficult to change and, and less fluid. Whereas with language, we tend to think, well, if you you know if you try hard enough, then um, you'll be able to learn a new language and migrants will be adapting to um, the new language environment. But as my research and and the research of many, many others has shown, that's of course in no way um, the case. Language learning for adults is a very, very difficult undertaking and um, takes years, a lifetime, to succeed, um, there always is the aspect of linguistic difference in a society. And now that you know migration has become so important globally, not only in Australia, I thought um, it would be good to um, use the Australian experience to explore the role of language in social inequality more systematically. And that was the motivation for the book.
0: Yes, indeed. Something that comes up in that answer, which you confront throughout the book, is is the fact that the relationship between language diversity and and social stratification Mm -hmm. is obviously a very complex one, and that there are lots of other factors in play, Mm -hmm. Um, and also that it's sometimes misunderstood with linguistic diversity either being blamed for or credited with effects that are actually due to other social causes. Mm -hmm. How do you go about untangling that web?
1: Look, um, as you say, in many ways it's almost impossible to entangle, right? It's um, a very complex story and um, language often comes to stand for other things. So that's the first observation. Well, The first observation I started with was I tried to isolate what are language effects in social justice. My focus was on social inequality because I wanted to start with real world problems. So my approach is not one to, that is sort of A normative justice approach is a very practical and pragmatic approach that starts from the question, what are social problems that are related to linguistic diversity? And where does language diversity serve maybe as a cover for discrimination or discrimination that has become illegitimate? And so I'm trying to look at how does language structure um, social justice, and social justice I conceive as consisting of three facets. One is um, economic inequality, so one of the questions I ask is how is language related to economic inequality? The particular focus here is on access to jobs, access to employment. The second question I ask is um social justice can also be conceived as one of equality of cultural representation or conversely as a problem of cultural domination. So where is language implicated in the way we see people as not as meritorious as others? How does language serve to um, justify in our minds and legitimize inequality? And the third question I ask is how is linguistic diversity implicated in parity or imperity of political participation and community participation? Starting from the Human Rights Declaration of the United Nations, community participation is seen as something that is fundamental to um, be able to live a, a just and meaningful life. That you can equally and, and everyone can freely enjoy public participation. And so I ask, how does language um, or language proficiency, or the language arrangements we have in the society, how does that constrain public participation? So that's the overall approach that I'm taking. So it's a very pragmatic approach that starts from social problems, starts from social justice, and conceives social justice as related to economic inequality, to um, cultural domination, and to imperity of political participation. Having said all that, um, as you say, it's really, really difficult to entangle language and language proficiency and aspects of linguistic discrimination from other forms of discrimination. And one of the fundamental findings or or, um, the fundamental convictions of um, social activists is that Inequality and discrimination often is a multifaceted phenomenon. There are all these intersections, of, uh, and, and, and one can sort of suffer from multiple inequalities. If we, Women of color tend to be more disadvantaged than white women, right, if we look at it from a gender perspective. And so there is often the burden of cumulative disadvantage, and language can be one aspect of cumulative disadvantage that um, people who are already disadvantaged because they are working class, because they are poor, um, because they have minority status in one way or another, because they have complex migration trajectories, refugees, and so on and so forth. um, Language becomes another facet of their disadvantage, of their cumulative disadvantage. Additionally, Language can actually serve as um, a pretext for discrimination that is no longer legitimate. And in um, Western societies, it has now, of course, become um, illegal to... um, Express or, or to to engage in racial discrimination. However, language is still a prejudice that can serve as a pretext for racial discrimination. So, if for let's talk about a job interview, for instance, um, if you are so inclined and tell someone, "I'm not giving you this job because your language proficiency is not good enough," that we see as legitimate discrimination. However, um, how does an interviewer decide whether the language proficiency of a job applicant is adequate or not? Very often, that's sort of a global judgment that very well may link in with the appearance or the general prejudices that the interviewer has against the applicant. And so language discrimination can become a front, uh, a, a show front, if you will, or a shop front for other forms of discrimination.
0: Yeah. I mean, taking up that particular point, this is something you talk about in chapter four, um, where you, you point to the inadequacy of, of simplistic assumptions that are sometimes made about how language ability automatically confers mm. access to the labour market. Do you feel that we're blasé about that?
1: Um, I think in particularly in Anglophone societies, there certainly is something that um, the sociolinguist Michael Klein has called the monolingual mindset. And what he means by talking about the monolingual mindset is that there is an assumption that English is enough and um, that really to be only speaking English is the normal state of affairs. And that kind of monolingual mindset really renders any access issues related to linguistic diversity invisible. So job interviewers, for instance, um, may not really have any particular idea about how difficult it is to learn a language, or they may not be capable to um, formulate like a set of criteria as to what kind of linguistic requirements are entailed in a job. So many of the case studies that I cite in that particular chapter are related to language being a gatekeeping mechanism to jobs that do not really require very sophisticated language skills. So, for instance, one of the case studies I have is with employment case in Germany where um, a cleaner from, from Croatia. Background lost her job because her English, her German was deemed insufficient to do the job. However, no one ever sat down, and you know she was supported by lawyers and just went through various labor courts and tribunals and whatnot. No one actually took it upon them to analyze what are the linguistic requirements of a cleaning job. Because the reality is you don't really need a whole lot of linguistic skills to um, clean a, a public pool. That that was her job. And so um, the overall knowledge about how to think systematically about langu- the role of language in conducting our social lives is very, very low. So we have a sort of limited, low level of sophistication when it comes to language. And that is clearly one of the problems that speakers of minority languages or people who are second language speakers of the dominant language. That is one of the problems they are facing, that their problems are not even recognized. And um, so really raising the level of awareness, um, kind of talking to a wider audience about how we need to become more sophisticated in our understanding of linguistic challenges in social life was another key um, Aim of my book.
0: Yes, talking about this uh, monolingual mindset or monolingual habitus, as mm-hmm. i uh, mm-hmm. um, you make the point early on when discussing linguistic diversity that there's an unspoken assumption out there that uh, only some people are diverse. Mm-hmm. And at the back of that, the idea, I suppose, that diversity resides in individuals rather than in the um, mm-hmm. How has this been problematic for approaches to language policy?
1: Okay, so. Um... As a sociolinguist, um, what we know is that each and every one of us has a particular repertoire and a specific way of speaking, and all of us have slightly different experiences, and there is a lot of linguistic diversity, right? So that's what a society is made up of. Not everyone speaks the same. Not, In fact, not two people speak the same. However, this kind of diversity that is ubiquitous often gets overlooked. And particularly when we look at a society from the perspective of migration, from the perspective of multilingualism, we kind of lose sight of all the internal diversity. And it's important to keep in mind that when we talk about a language, if we talk about English, for instance, we are really making something that is incredibly diverse, sort of homogenizing it in a way. We are, um, you know, putting it in a box, and that's for ease of reference, and there's nothing wrong with that, but um, it's at the same time important to keep in mind that all languages do not exist on a practical level. They are an abstraction. To talk about English or to talk about German or to talk about any other language with a name is always an abstraction that makes it easier for us to communicate because, you know, we can't communicate all the all the detail and all the diversity. However, once we start talking about multilingualism, once we start talking about migration, once we tar- start talking about second language speakers, we We kind of forget that there is all this internal variation within any given language and that all of us speak in specific ways that are part of who we are, that are related to what kind of experiences we had as we grew up, what kind of schooling we had who we've been hanging out with, um, who we aspire to be. And so the way we speak is really as unique to each and every one of us as um, the way we dress, the way we look. So it's very much part of who we are. And um, this is something that is that often gets overlooked. And then um when we start looking at a society from the migra- migration angle, we all of a sudden make this important distinction between Who is a native and who is not? And that then becomes related to questions of who is a legitimate member of a society and who isn't. And most Western societies, certainly since the 18th century, since state formation in Europe, colonization, the developments related to the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, and so on and so forth, All these states have um, developed quite strong ideologies related to who is an insider and who is an outsider, who is a native and who is not a native. And language becomes part of the state definition. So someone who is a citizen or a native-born citizen, we see these people, irrespective of how they speak, we see them as more legitimate speakers of a language and um newcomers or people who have minority status or people who you know don't have equal citizenship rights are somehow also viewed as having a, a different linguistic repertoire and they are the ones who then become seen as um linguistically different um one of the examples that i use in the book is um related to um, a term that we use in australia and that term is um called people called people that's an acronym that stands for c for culturally a and l linguistically d diverse so culturally and linguistically diverse people and then the definition that we find in policy discourses is that culturally and linguistically diverse people are um First generation migrants, the sons and daughters of migrants, so second generation, if you will, um, people where English might be spoken natively who come from the Commonwealth, but um, who may not be familiar with um, Australian culture. And so it really is code for anyone who is not Anglo-Celtic or of Anglo-Celtic extraction. And so anglo Anglo celts in Australia are somehow exempted from being diverse. Everyone else is diverse or seen as diverse. But people of Anglo-Celtic background and um, more generally European backgrounds, they've been, you know, here for a couple of generations, they are not seen as diverse, everyone else is. And and there is only a small step to seeing that diversity, not in in neutral terms, as you know, everyone's diverse, but as um, some sort of objectionable difference or um, difference that justifies questioning the legitimacy of the presence of those who are considered diverse.
0: Yes, it seems like we're returning to your point of earlier that language comes to stand for other things. Mm -hmm. You would say that um, variables that weren't necessarily uh, considered to be meaningful if they merely allowed you to discern whether a white Anglo individual came from one city or another, uh, somehow become loaded with an evaluative quality of that are being used to label and other uh, groups of individuals, would that mm-hmm. be fair?
1: That would definitely be fair to say. Um, I think it's also important to keep in mind that, you know, this is actually a, a quite recent development there because until not so long ago, it was very well recognized that within a language Speakers of a variety labeled as dialect, so rural speakers in the UK, speakers from the north of England, that they did suffer disadvantage, and um, that within English there was social stratification related to native speaker English. But within a context where all of a sudden now our perspective is global, our perspective is so much on migration, um, I think the focus has really shifted towards disadvantage that is related or inequality that is related to being a second language speaker of English, for instance.
0: That's interesting. It rather parallels the the, um, evolution of the definition of white as Mm -hmm. a ethnic group or not does not?
1: Um I think there is a, there are a lot of parallels with the way we see language and um and, and linguistic legitimacy and the way we see other forms of identity, particularly racial identity and also, citizenship. I alluded to that one earlier because very often we don't really make a judgment. If we are face to face with a second language speaker, so to speak, we don't make a judgment really on the basis of the way they speak. We kind of see them speaking as representatives of um, a particular culture or a particular racial identity. There is this wonderful study that um, I quote quite early in the book that was conducted by um, Rubin at a Florida university in um, the early 1990s. And what Rubin did is he audio recorded a short undergraduate psychology lecture, a couple of minutes long. And um, the recording was by um, a white woman who was a native speaker of American English and who spoke in a standard American accent, sort of Midwestern American accent, and um, then this audio recording was played to two groups of undergraduate students. One group of undergraduate students listened to that audio recording as they saw an image of a white woman on a screen. And so the assumption that they were, they were led to believe that that white woman was the speaker in the audio recording. And after they'd listened to the audio recording they were asked to um rate the language the lecture structure and their learning experience and um the students who listened to that audio recording against the um, picture of the white woman they you know were quite positive about that lecture they said um, the lecture was well-spoken, it was very clearly enunciated, they understood everything, they liked the structure of the lecture, they felt it was clearly structured, and when it came to evaluating their learning experience, they felt they had learned something and there were key points that had been made in the lecture and they had understood them. Now, exactly the same audio recording was then played to another group of undergraduate students. This time, the second group of undergraduate students, when they listened to the lecture, they saw the image of an Asian woman. So for them, the impression was that the Asian woman was delivering the lecture. Now, the audio input has not had not changed at all all that had changed was the visual image of who they thought was talking in that audio recording and It's unbelievable how different their evaluation was. So a number of the students in the second scenario um, actually said they um, didn't like the lecture because of the Asian accent of um, the lecturer. So they felt there was an accent present, although none was present in the linguistic stimulus. They commented that the lecture wasn't well structured. Again, a couple of students even specifically said they didn't like the lecture structure because it was structured in a circular way and there didn't seem to be a point in it. And the second group rated their learning experience much, much lower. They felt they hadn't really learned Anything much because it was so, the lecture was so difficult to understand in their view. And so, what this study tells us really is that what we hear is not something that is objectively out there, but when we speak to someone else, when we perceive the language, the language proficiency, the way someone else speaks what we hear is in the eye of the beholder partly if you will. So all kinds of prior knowledge is activated and that in a sense makes the question of linguistic diversity and social stratification very very difficult for um, linguistics that does not take the social into account because none of this can be explained if you just purely look at language as some sort of objective stimulus. So it's very important to also consider um, social ideologies, to consider social structures, and to try and imagine, examine the interplay between these two social realities.
0: I um, want to take the opportunity then to ask uh, in chapter four, workplace. Uh, it, here and elsewhere in the book, you, you link the discussion with a much broader socio-economic critique. In that case, on the on the functioning of the international labour markets mm-hmm. and elsewhere on the encroachment of neoliberalism more generally. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how central do you see that as being to your your own intellectual project? Um,
1: very central because it's very central to the the social world we live in at the moment. And so one of my aims was that, you know, many of the things I'm talking about, like um, that language structures, social inequality, that language can serve as a pretext for other forms of exclusion none of that is particularly new and is a point that has been made again and again by sociolinguists at least since um, the middle of the 20th century. However, what I see as new is um, that I try to explore these issues in a fundamentally changed world, um, one that is now characterized by the dominance of globalization, if you want to call it, by um, significant migration streams, by um, certainly a perception that, um, and probably also a reality that the world. More people are on the move and um, we have more access to a global imagination. So our reference point is no longer just the national. Our reference point really has become the global. And within these developments, language also has taken on a new meaning. Um, one thing that at one point that I alluded to earlier on was that language proficiency can become um, a pretext for racial discrimination. When I said, um, you know, job applicant may be rejected um, not because of the color of their skin, because we are not allowed to say that, but um, and, you know, it's illegal. But if we still kind of want to reject them on the basis of racial discrimination, then language becomes a pretext and language is much more difficult to contest. So As I said, if um, someone says you are not qualified for the job because your English isn't good enough or whatever language is the dominant language is not good enough, that's very difficult to contest because on what basis do I sort of say, oh, this is actually... How qualified is the interviewer to make that judgment or, um, how relevant, as I said in the example with the cleaner, how relevant is language actually to the job performance? So language has taken on new meanings and, um, Part of the neoliberal globalization project has, of course, been to also change our culture to become more competitive and in a sense to highlight individual merit, to highlight that or to To find social justification by saying whatever we do is the responsibility of the individual. So social inequality is no longer seen as, or no longer widely seen as, the result of unequal social relations, of class relations. But rather, we've really gone back to the 19th century view that poverty is the responsibility of the individual. And now language is uniquely suited to justify such inequalities that are related to personal responsibility because personal respons- because language and your language proficiency and your language resources can be constructed as something that is your personal responsibility in the way that other aspects of your identity cannot so obviously um we would not say that your um, gender or your racial appearance is your personal responsibility, but the way you speak can be constructed as your personal responsibility. You know, have you tried hard enough? Have you learned hard enough? Have you invested enough time? And that kind of personal responsibility approach means that we overlook not everyone has the same preconditions when they learn another language, not the same access, and that the outcomes of language learning are pretty much just as much a matter of luck, if you will, as many other aspects of your identity. Um, So the success of adult language learning is related to aspects such as your age, the older you are the more difficult it becomes to learn another language the level of your prior education usually the more highly educated you are um, the easier it is to learn another language in a new context particularly if it is a formal language learning context how much time you like what your socioeconomic situation is if you have to go out and work any kind of job just to make ends meet. Obviously you don't have time to invest um, in formal language learning, in classroom education. Um, There is also this belief that actually having a job, any kind of job, will improve language proficiency. Now that is um, something that a lot of the research I refer to, a lot of our research that we've done here at Macquarie University has actually thoroughly debunked because it depends on what kind of job you have. And if we look at um, jobs such as cleaning, for instance, which is very often a kind of entry-level job for new migrants, um, the way cleaning, outsourced cleaning and outsourced industrial cleaning is structured nowadays, it gives you very, very limited language learning opportunities, very limited interactional opportunities. So it's not an opportunity to improve your language. It's, You know, it's just something you have to do that, in a way, takes away from your language learning. And um, because the reduction of the welfare state, because the neoliberal transformation of the economy has been so fundamental to the way we live our lives today, certainly language has become more important, and that's why it is quite central.
0: But to, to skip ahead to the later chapters, the way you address the question... Uh, of participation in mm-hmm. society particularly I, I read you as being very skeptical about uh the way in which language has been commoditized and is being sold as a uh, as a guarantee of participation mm-hmm. um
1: that's certainly the case um if we maybe go back to the chapter about education i mean one of one of the key drivers of the economy in countries like Australia nowadays also in the u k is education has become a very important export of these countries and um, international education is certainly something that we see as very very meaningful and a good way to achieve globalization internationalization and so on and so forth now many of the um, students who um, come to anglophone countries in particular they come under the assumption that if they improve their English, then um, that will open all kinds of doors for them. However, as I said, that's not necessarily the case. So a lot of the studies that we look at find, uh, that I cite in the study, a lot of the research that um, we've done here at Macquarie really shows that it can be very difficult to improve your English in a context That is often seen as an ideal language learning context, namely the one of higher education. And that is related to the fact that as a language learner, you always have a dual task. The dual task is to improve your language as you do something else. To improve your language as you learn and study for a course, for instance, or to improve your language as you perform being a worker and a colleague. And that's not an easy feat to achieve because usually you jeopardize one or the other. Um, If you are a low or intermediate proficiency learner of a language, it's very difficult to project a competent perception or or a competent persona as um, a student or a competent persona as a colleague. And so people often may actually feel like, do I talk now? And do I take any kind of interactional opportunity as a language learning opportunity, even if I sound kind of stupid and insane? Or do I protect my my core identity as a competent student and keep quiet for instance and all these challenges of interaction and it's not only that the language learner is facing all these questions on a continuous basis it's also that um interlocutors are not necessarily you know always supportive and inclusive and most of us don't have the time and don't you know don't know how to support the language learning of someone who is sort of an everyday interactant, and that really is part of the challenge of participation that i think we're only just starting to address and again something that i wanted to just highlight more in my book that um You know, often the question of linguistic diversity and social justice is addressed as one of rights, you know, that um, all kinds of languages have rights and so on and so forth, but many of the challenges of community participation, in particular challenges that come up in daily intercultural communication when um, you have different levels of proficiency, these are not challenges that are really amenable to a rights approach. What they are amenable to in my my view and, and why I'm still optimistic about this project Is really um, a broadening of our approach um, and the broadening of of the view, both on the part of language learners and those who interact with language learners, that language is very central, that we need to be patient with each other, and that linguistic diversity also has so much to contribute to enriching a society and to enriching our interactions. So... um, you know, to to kind of open people's minds also to the excitement of um, linguistic difference and the way this can actually also improve our communications if we just try to get away from this perspective that it's just all too hard, too difficult, and that those who are not as proficient as everyone else or who... Are stigmatized as lacking proficiency, that they somehow or another don't have an equal right to contribute. That everyone who is, you know, in a university classroom or who is a citizen has an equal right to participate, and um, we all need to work to make that happen.
0: Yes, indeed. And I'd like to cut back on that topic to uh, to the subject of education more generally. Um, and and bilingual education. Um, Mm -hmm. In respect of testing in schools, uh, for Mm -hmm. example, largely this this monolingual mindset is very Mm -hmm. uh, strongly in place and you you sharply criticise the misapplication of majority language tests to children who speak minority languages in Mm -hmm. context. I would be interested to know a little bit more about your views on that. Do you see it as a problem of the the lack of provision of the appropriate tests or the the way the results Mm -hmm. stigmatise or the logic of testing at all?
1: Generally, I think um, in education, we are now in a space where accountability is very, very important. League tables are very, very important. Scores are very important. And we kind of believe our politicians and policy makers in public discourse, we find this idea that everything needs to be ranked and standardized. Testing really is the ultimate evidence that we have on educational quality. Now, that has a number of negative consequences for children who do not speak the dominant language. And that may be because they are new migrants and just do not have proficiency in the dominant language, that may be because they are minoritized in other ways and speak a language other than the dominant language at home, or that may be because, um, you know, they of working class backgrounds or whatever and speak some sort of dialect and some sort of vari- variation of the majority language that doesn't quite fit the middle class norm that is being tested in those tests. So all these kids are really being left behind by standardized testing. And we have a lot of evidence that um, schools who... Um, you know, have high populations of um, second language speakers or dialect speakers to stigmatized varieties because speakers of disadvantaged varieties, that those schools, they underperform and um, on standardized tests in one way that teachers and principals and the school system tries to Deal With their underperformance is not actually by teaching them, but by getting them out of the testing system. And um, we have a lot of evidence that, you know, people are just trying to not show the performance of minority speakers on tests and try to keep them away from tests because they underperform. Now, why do they underperform? Um, that actually is related to the logic of testing because um, the logic of standardized testing is one of everyone's the same. Just to give you an example and one that is also in the book is Australian research with um, because of Aboriginal varieties of English in the Northern Territory. In that test um, that is used nationwide in Australia, one example that I remember right now is um, there was a testing item that included picket fences. Now picket fences don't exist in, you know, remote Northern Australia. so. Just certain testing items that are supposed to be equal for everyone, actually, they just don't exist in the lived reality of certain children. Or a more telling um, example that I've also got in the book is actually of an African refugee child in um, the U.S. in whose reading test, there was a reading passage about um, Neil Armstrong landing on the moon and um, traveling there on um, a spaceship named the Eagle and that was sort of the input text and then the first question was is this text fictional or non-fictional? Now of course the answer is it's non-fictional and then all the other test responses Followed from that. However, that particular kid, um, as I said, an African refugee child who had only recently arrived in the US, he actually did understand the passage, but he later explained to the teacher this is a fictional text because people don't go to the moon and they don't ride on the back of eagles. So that little kid had actually perfectly understood the input text and he had also understood the difference between fictional and non-fictional writing. However, because he had a different kind of knowledge of the world than the average American kid, he still got it all wrong. Because once he had answered that the text was fictional, then all the other questions that followed from having understood that the text was non-fictional, he got all of those wrong. And so um he, you know, completely failed the test, completely underperformed. And um, this is not the fault of a kid. This is the fault of an education system that kind of is under the illusion that – everything has to be standardized and that standardized test scores are meaningful because if we were to look at this particular kid and his performance in any other way than the kind of national standardized approach we would say yeah he did well you know he understood the text he understood the difference between fictional and non-fictional writing He just had a different knowledge of the world and um, so test scores are very, very problematic because they hide knowledge that is there and they render some knowledge as valuable. And very often that's sort of the middle class knowledge that test writers have in mind. And they render other knowledges as invisible, as invaluable. And then, of course, the consequence is that if you are a child that continuously experiences failure, dis- your best effort you know to go back to this little refugee kid very enthusiastic very bright but turns out he's all wrong in the test and of course that also creates a cumulative burden and the end result is very high dropout rates for second language learners and um, we know that to complete high school or not is still the best predictor of leading a productive life later in life. So um, if you create educational disadvantage and if we don't actually do better and that's, you know, I'm speaking of sort of all of us, all Western societies really that see significant migration, if we don't do better to integrate minority children in schools and enable them to succeed in school the consequences are you know quite dire for every one of us and um, are paid in more fractious societies
0: yes indeed um i wanted to touch on another aspect of bilingual education that you, mm-hmm. which you mentioned and which is relevant to the, some of the points you were making there i think um which is the, the issue of parental input which seems to be a major. Uh, determined in whether children achieve a desirable state of high-level functional bilingualism. Mm-hmm. Um, what's often struck me about that, um, not only from what you write, but also from sort of personal anecdotal experience, mm-hmm. is that it um, it seems to perpetuate social advantages down the generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that something you feel that, that schooling can rectify realistically?
1: Well, it's a difficult question, I guess. Um, you know, not every social problem can be rectified in schools and we are all overburdening schools anyway. So in that sense, I'm, I, I do not necessarily have a view or I don't have any specific knowledge to say can schools rectify, um, generational disadvantage to any degree. At the moment, what we can say is that many schools um, serve to entrench disadvantage. But maybe to go back to your bilingual education question, one thing that's quite interesting about bilingual education is that bilingualism per se has come to be seen quite differently depending on who has the bilingualism. So, um for middle-class families, bilingualism really has come to be seen as something very desirable, an additional edge, an additional advantage that we can confer on children. And it's very often that the bilingualism of the dominant is highly valued. If now, if you're following politics, um, Hillary Clinton recently picked her running mate, and I forget his name now, but there was a lot being made of the fact that he was bilingual in Spanish, and and everyone is very excited about the fact that this um, white, non-Latino senator is bilingual in Spanish, and um, on some of the Twitter feeds I followed, there was a lot of, you know, comment on that, that if he were Latino, his bilingualism wouldn't be half as valuable. And so the value of bilingual education is really very much tied to who you are. And we encourage the bilingualism of the dominant, but we actually discourage and devalue the bilingualism of those who are marginalized in other ways. And one thing that we know in bilingual education is, of course, that parental input, as you said, is very, very important, that the home language is very important. And what's so interesting, if we look at the advice literature, for instance, is that dominant parents are very often advised to speak a minority language with their child and speak the minority language all the time and whatnot. But migrant parents receive um, exactly the opposite advice, their advice to um, speak the dominant language with their children, not speak speak the home language, not speak their native language, but speak the um, majority language. And the consequence can often actually be a real poverty of linguistic stimulus and a real breakdown of intergenerational communication. In a in a study of ESL mothers in Canada a couple of years ago that I also cite in the book, um, Sandra Curitzen interviewed mothers from all kinds of migrant backgrounds, and many of them had taken the advice to only speak English with their kids. And um, many of them found that as their children grew older and grew into teenagers and adults, they actually didn't have a strong linguistic connection, because the English of the mothers was not good enough to have a kind of you know, adult conversation and uh, conversation about difficult topics that you must have with teenagers and young adults. But on the other hand, because they had... um only spoken English to their children, the children didn't have high levels of proficiency in the heritage language. And so the children didn't have the proficiency to have a difficult conversation or an adult conversation with their parents in um, the heritage language. And so the result, of course, is linguistic alienation and, and, and breakdown. And so we really need to, I think, also be better at valuing the bilingualism of everyone and not only seeing it as you know it's good for you if you are advantaged in other ways then it's an additional advantage but for those who are struggling already um we're kind of saying bilingualism is not for you because you'd only end up with a deficit in both languages anyways
0: yes it's a very unfortunate situation Mm. in terms of communicating um I would love to ask many more questions, but our time is nearly up, um, so I really must ask you what you're uh, what you're working on at the moment.
1: Yeah, so I'm still very excited about this book just having come out. Um, there are two key projects I'm working on at the moment. Um, one is actually a revised edition of um, another book I wrote um, a couple of years ago, an introduction to intercultural communication. So I'm in the process of revising that, and um, that will come out um, with Edinburgh University Press next year. And then a more long-term project I'm working on is related to um, linguistic privilege. As you will have seen, the book ends kind of with questions. How can those of us who are linguistically privileged actually support a more... Um, equal society. And um, so I'm interested in how, on the one hand, linguistic privilege shapes our views of language learning. In language learning, we often have in applied linguistics, in TESOL, we often have this kind of implicit view of the learner as, you know, an able-bodied white guy who has no other care in the world apart from language learning and that view i think is actually both theoretically and 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 practically quite pernicious because it um, means that it obscures the challenges related to you know not having this kind of wonderful privileged identities related to language learning i'm also interested in uh, linguistic privilege related to the British Raj and um, colonialism, I've sort of got a side interest in the history of the Middle East. And one of the projects I'm working on is um, how British colonial of- officers learned languages such as Persian and Arabic um, in the 19th century, how they were trained to Serve and, and what kind of attitudes they had towards learning those languages and how those are related to their privileged position. So that's sort of um, in the future and the long-term interest of mine.
0: Well, it's a fascinating array of uh, material across uh, space and time, and I look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you.
0: I've been talking to Ingrid filler about linguistic diversity and social justice. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.